Hello and welcome to the Mindful Family Business. My name is Russ Hayworth and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Martin Stepek. In each episode, we will be exploring and learning about the ancient teachings of mindfulness and how we can apply these to situations within our family business. We are also offering access to a program that takes what we speak about and applies it to your own family business. More details of that at the end of the show. But for now, take a breath, relax and enjoy the show. Hello, Martin. How are you today? Hi, Ross. I am really well and life is good. Um, and that's largely because the sun's shining in Scotland, which is always a treat for us. As probably <laughs> listeners already know. Yeah, we, we've been spoke with some sunshine um, today and uh, it's, it was very pleasant to just feel the warmth uh, on my face um, in the garden earlier. It was a, a very pleasant experience. So um, I, uh, I share your joy in, in terms of the, the weather being nice uh, here today. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the third of the four noble truths. And before we get into those, what I thought would be useful is to summarize the previous two that we have looked at and um, remind people who may have listened to to the previous show what the um, first and second of the noble truths are. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of a, a summary of what we've already covered, then That'd be great. Sure. And at a personal perspective, this is good practice anyway. I go through the four noble truths and what follows from that every day almost. Remind myself, remind myself, because the mind doesn't really want to live this way. The mind wants to go on its own course. So it's good practice. So... It's called the Four Noble Truths, which is a poor translation of what it really is all about, which is truths that ennoble you or truths that make you a better person. That's essentially what it is. And this was a formula that was created by the Buddha to try to summarize his key teachings. And the first truth is that there is a lot of suffering in life. And that may at one level, sound very pessimistic. At another level, it might sound very obvious. But it's the reminding ourselves that suffering and dissatisfaction, especially mental suffering, is inherent in us. We do get angry, we do get annoyed, we do get impatient, we do get frustrated. And in that sense, it is almost omnipresent. So it's that just that embedding of that truth that suffering and frustration and a lack of peace of mind is in us all. The second truth is, well, where does that come from? Why are we like that? And he described it as thirst, which is a a good translation. This desire for something. You're thirsty for a drink. You really want it. And there are some things we really want in life, sometimes material, but sometimes emotional relationships. Um, a change to, to what's happening societally, globally, politically, like climate change or whatever. Um, 
but also the other side to that is an ending to negative things. So if you're living in a house and the, I don't know, the bath is flowing over and it's dripping, then your thirst is for that to end. So this understanding that it's these, it's an inner impulse of wanting that causes the negatives that we call sort of suffering within within a Buddhist context. The other way of, of looking at it now would be an understanding that we are genetically programmed to be like this. You can't get angry if you didn't have a gene that propelled anger. You know, just in the same way as I always use the same example is no matter how strong I make my arms and how fast I flap my arms, I can't fly because I'm genetically built not to be able to fly. Well, human beings are genetically built to have all these negative reactions and emotions. And if we, if we didn't have the genes for them, we wouldn't have them. We wouldn't have depression. We wouldn't have anxiety. We wouldn't have frustration. We didn't, wouldn't have resentment if there wasn't something in us that made that happen. So that's, that's the, two, the two truths is the existence of dissatisfaction and the fact that it comes from constant wants, wanting things, some things and wanting an end to other things. Yeah, and in our previous episode, we explored some of the things that we can be doing in a personal context, but also through a family business context around those wants and desires and, and those feelings. So if anyone is coming to this and this is their first time of hearing that, then please do head back and listen to the, the previous episode because we do talk and explore some of the things that we can be doing um, around that. Um, but the topic of today's show is around the third of the noble truths or the, the truths that will uh, ennoble us. And the the title of that, I guess, is the potential to overcome these and achieve harmony, which offers a chink of light. If the first two were more around um, suffering and, and um, wants and desires, this offers a the sort of chink of light around it. So could, can you kind of, again, place that into um, some more context as to to what this actually means? Yeah, sure. It's in its simplest terms in the original text, it's an end to suffering. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting the, the way you put it so well. Um, There's a chink of light. But I think as we work on it and develop it, it becomes a bigger and bigger ray of light. And I've never got there, but if you ever got to the end of it, it would be literally all light, which is why one of the concepts is enlightened. You know, you are literally enlightened. Um, the original word for it was Nibbana, in an ancient language called Pali. And that get changed to the word which we know more commonly in Sanskrit, which is nirvana. And nirvana actually means the dowsing of flames. So basically the extinguishing of fire. So if you think of all your negative reactions, they have a kind of heat to them. They burn. You know, anger burns inside you. Resentment burns inside you. And what this word nirvana is basically saying is, with practice, you can stop these firing up. So it's, a, it's, it's expressed in the negative. It's an ending of something. 
unpleasant in us. And it's, it's an astonishing vision, if you like, of normal human nature cultivated in a particular way to such a degree that we no longer have these negative things firing up in us. They can appear, but we don't feed the fuel and they just die away. And therefore, that's when you get the sort of stereotype of the, the Buddhist person sitting there, serene, eyes sort of half-closed, with a big smile on their face or a little smile on their face, cross-legged, and nothing happens to them. And there are all sorts of amazing, um, probably apocryphal stories, but some realistic ones that I could just touch on, if I, if I may. The, the apocryphal one is in, in Japan, um, say 16th, 17th centuries. I might get that historically wrong, so if there's any Japanese history experts out there, so please feel free to correct me. But there's a town and the bandits, samurai kind of bandits are attacking it and they run rampage and all you can hear everywhere is screams and blood on the streets and it's a horrible scene. And so the bandits get closer and closer to the inner, the temple um, of the town and they get into it and they're killing all the monks and all that. And then they get into the, the real centre of the, the temple and they see this wee stereotype, classic wise old guy that's always ageist and sexist in these stories. Um, so it's a wise old man and he's just sitting doing the stereotype, serene smile, meditating, and there's noise all around him. And they're amazed at this. And so they get the chief, they get the head um, bandit or samurai and he comes in and he looks and he gets really angry and he runs up to the person and he sort of, even though his eyes are closed, the, the old man's eyes closed, he looks straight in the face and says, don't you know I could cut off your head without blinking my eye? And the old man opens his eyes and says, don't you know I would let you without blinking my eye? And it's that idea of no fear of death, nothing disturbs him. And the story goes that that was so astonishing that, the captain said, teach us this fearlessness. And that's wow. how the samurai and others then started getting taught Zen. Hence, so the story goes. Wow. There is a true story. You're too young, but I'm not too young. Um, it's in my lifetime, but I, I didn't know it except for um, in retrospect. Do you know the band Rage Against the Machine? Uh-huh. One of their famous albums is of a Buddhist monk on fire. Yes. Uh -huh. And it is one of the most moving but astonishing photographs, I think, of the 20th century. And in essence, what happened was this is before the Americans get involved in the Vietnam War. I think they were advising at this point. Um, but the French had been vanquished and then Vietnam was essentially entering civil war and the um, government at the time was very despotic and dictatorial and cruel to its own people. So the Buddhist monks kind of rose and protested against this and they were being arrested. And this guy who I think was probably the equivalent of the Archbishop of York or the Archbishop of Canterbury, so a senior person in Buddhism in, in, in Vietnam, which is a Buddhist country, 
he decided one day he would go, so he called a press conference to the main square, so probably the equivalent of Trafalgar Square or Leicester Square in London or George Square here in Scotland in Glasgow. And so all the media were there, and he just sat down and told his colleagues, his fellow monks, to douse him in petrol and set fire to him. And so the most powerful report is in the New York Times. And I find this very moving, actually, just expressing it. The guy said, all around, everyone was screaming. So very similar to the apocryphal story in the temple. Everyone was screaming, and except for this priest who sat there burning to death, breathing in and breathing out, seeming to feel no pain at all until all that remained were ashes and the ashes just collapsed. And it's this idea that you don't fear death, that you don't fear pain, and that you have the ability to overcome these normal feelings if you so train your mind to do so. And that is real. That's There's film footage of it. There's photography footage. There's day after reported. And it's, so it's early 1960s. Um, and it's staggering um, that the, the mind can be so developed and so disciplined that it can overcome. I mean, if anyone listening here or you or I, if someone struck a match and put it under our hand for two seconds, we'd be running away in fear, you know, the pain of it. Yeah. And to do that, so it shows what can be done when we train a mind. But it is with the usual Blue Peter thing is, you know, don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> from the context of the, the third truth is to say that we don't know all that's possible about how to live. We don't know all that's possible, how we can discipline our bodies and discipline our minds and move in the direction of greater happiness, greater effectiveness and greater compassion and kindness. Mm. And I think, um, in terms of kind of connecting the dots from what we've spoken about around the first uh, Noble Tree, the second, and, and now um, this one as well, is that the inevitability that there will be suffering and there will be dissatisfaction. Coupled to that is the fact that that comes from our wants and desires and um, likes and 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 um, things like that and and dislikes, and then the reassuring element that despite that we are able to overcome this through practice, through training our brain and our mind in in the way that we can through mindfulness practices to be able to overcome these. I find that just listening to, to it and I'm, we're live in this this conversation here, I find that very inspiring. It's kind of, I've got butterflies in my stomach when I'm thinking about the, the kind of the true possibility and potential of us as human beings if we're able to harness and capture what our minds are, are truly capable of without the kind of um, distractions, if that's the right word, of what modern society places on us as expectations of what success looks like and what 
we spoke about um, materialism and, and some of the elements of that that creep into to everyday life. And I don't want to get too kind of virtue signaling over the, the kind of how everyone should live, but in terms of understanding what it is that's going to make us truly happy and then training our mind to maximize the opportunity of that is hugely inspiring. And obviously the, the, there's two elements of what we look at in, in these shows. It's one is the, the mindfulness element. The other is the family business element. And again, if you take those noble truths and just, you know, capsulize them within a family business, there is an inevitability of suffering within that. Um, there's obviously loads of upside, but there's the inevitability of, of suffering there. You've then got the causes of that being the different wants, likes, and dislikes of people within that family system, but also the huge reassurance and, and motivation that can come from understanding and knowing that you can overcome that through practice and through you know, a continual journey of how we train our mind. I, again, I, I hope that comes across as something that's inspiring to, to people that uh, irrespective of whatever difficulties they might be facing in, in their family business, that you will overcome it and, and you can overcome it. Yes, and I mean, one of the brilliant things about this is the, the realisation, not quite that anything's possible, but that mentally loads of things are possible. So a family that is dysfunctional, and many are, a family that has had a breach or a chasm because of a particular incident, doesn't have to live with that all the time. These things can be healed. You can move forward. You can overcome deep disagreements amicably. You can agree to disagree in major things and still love each other and be friendly with each other and be at ease with each other but it requires a mind that's capable of doing that. And so the third truth is basically saying this is possible. And therefore, in a sense, there's no excuse for not trying to make it possible. And to me, that's the, the real message of the third truth is that this would bring so much benefit to you as an individual and if you're part of a family, if you're a partner or a spouse or a son or a daughter or a parent, then you have a duty to be the best of you for them as well. So it's not just a selfish thing. It's a duty for others. And why wouldn't you want to be the best version of you compared to the least best version of you, the one that you're kind of by default born with um, and that life shifts and changes you? An important part is also that as we age, our wishes and our wants and our dislikes change. And if we're not careful, then as other people close to us, especially in a family business context, their wishes, their desires, their aims, their visions also change. And if you're not careful, you just start growing further and further apart. And this ability to then temper in and clarify what really matters and what is lesser of importance. 
that makes those inevitable changes in each of us much more compatible and reconcilable than if we just happen to go with the flow of them and and start having clashes and indifferences towards what other people want. Mm. I think I, um, I can relate to to the changing of aspirations and, and goals as I've um, got older. So I'm 42 this year. And I remember back as I was um, approaching 30, I set myself the target of making sure I had a certain set of qualifications which allowed me to to be referred to as chartered in the, the profession that I was in at the time. And it was as soon as I get there, I will feel better. I will feel more capable. I will feel as if I'm better able to do my job because I've got this certificate, you know, this badge that I can show people that I am, I do know what I'm talking about. And as I've got older, I've sort of appreciated that actually it's okay not to know everything even. It, you don't have to show that. And that comes, if, if I'd have stuck with my mentality or, uh, as I was uh, approaching 30, I would just constantly be seeking external validation as opposed to what is really true to me and, and um, what's going to make me happy and fulfilled in my life. And, it, you know, I wouldn't have shifted careers as I have done in recent years to, to be doing something that I'm truly passionate about. And I think accepting that that, um, mindset shift can be supported and uh, I would dare say I, I would have been advanced and um, made um, more straightforward for me had I been practicing more of the mindfulness approaches that we've been discussing over recent weeks in, in these shows. I, I'm fairly certain that I would have been able to cope with those changes far better as a result of that as well. So there's two elements of the, the learning from me there is um, there's that old saying, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. So the best time for me to have started to, to do more in the way of exploring mindfulness would have been 20 years ago. The next best time is now. Yeah. And the now is crucial in, in mindfulness. It's, it's in the present moment that you can be, free from suffering in the present moment you can be totally at peace in the present moment you can be incredibly happy it's down to who's in charge of your feelings in the present moment rather than the externals of the world but there's something about wants and desires and plans that is really interesting from a, a Buddhist and from a mindfulness point of view and it comes back to something I may have mentioned in an earlier um, session, what Marcus Aurelius said, the, the great, truly great Roman emperor, you know, coming back from his, his battles, and he wrote down, remember, Marcus, how little it takes to have a fulfilled life. You know, food, clothing, shelter, that's it. I mean, refugees learn that in a really, really powerful way. And Now, when you think along those lines. I mean, what springs to mind is there's an old song, by old I mean 1960s song, um, called Is That All There Is? And it's by Brenda Lee, I think, if I remember right. And it's the most cynical but profound song I think I've ever heard. So she basically, each verse is, you know, I was born and I grew up and we lived in a fancy home. And, and I thought to myself, eventually, is that all there is? to a fancy home and then the house gets burned down and 
she says, is that all there is to a fire? And then, you know, it's, it's each thing and it's, is that all there is? And if that's all there is, then let's be dancing, let's break out the booze and have a ball. You know, it's a really cynical song, but essentially what it's saying is that we constantly desire things and then once we've got it, they're not that great. They're not as great in reality as they are in our as you know, in our aspirations, I mean, down in, I think, in the third shelf down there are sort of my books that I've published. And that, well, I'd always wanted to write a book since I was a teenager and first got published when I was 43 or something. And the idea of it was great, but, you know, the reality is just, well, it's just now a job done. And now I've got 11 books and you might think, oh, wow, person has published 11 books. But there's, not, there's nothing bad about it, but there's nothing over-exciting about it. You know, what still matters is fresh air, sunshine, making sure I've got water, a cup of green tea beside me and some warm clothing on a cold day. And nothing else other than the people you love matter. And this recognition that this thing here, this body thing, is just a temporary arrangement. I'm going, In other words, I'm going to die sometime, so make use of the moments. And once you've got that cracked, everything else becomes quite easy because that's you. These are the results of mindfulness. You've recognised that all these mental sufferings are just creations in the head. You recognise that they're all about wants, and therefore get rid of your wants, and you become mm-hmm. happy. Boom, like magic, except it's hard yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was going to come on to that in terms of. You've mentioned, uh, again, in this show and, and uh, in previous shows around what the practices of mindfulness can help us to achieve and, and to um, focus on. And if we follow the, the so far the three of the, the noble truths, we, we know that the, the inevitability of suffering that, that comes from uh, wants, likes and dislikes, and that we can overcome that. How do you translate that into mindful practices in order to kind of remind yourself on a daily basis because it is like anything with with the brain we need to train it on a regular basis now i'm as guilty as anybody of um so far, up until this, this kind of recent um project that, that we're working on is dipping my toe i think would be the appropriate phrase in terms of mindfulness and doing practices occasionally and the the aspiration of that enlightenment um, side of it is, is motivational. It is driving you, but it does require daily practice. And I wonder, you know, if you could share some thoughts on what somebody's daily practice might look like in order to help them get to or closer towards enlightenment. Sure. Now, this will vary from person to person, and it should vary from person to person because we have different lives and different kind of routines in our life. So I'll just take it from me starting my day. Um, I'm unconscious for the first seven hours of a day or so. Uh, or seven, yeah, so I wake up half six to 20 past seven-ish. And I then I'm awake and therefore now I can start to be mindful. So I notice my mood and quite often my mood's a bit grumpy when I wake up for no reason. It just is. It's genetic, whatever. I blame my dad. Um, <laughs> and I notice my grumpiness. And so I immediately become mindful and notice other things so that my grumpiness goes. And what I've found worked for me 
about 15, 16 years ago, is I noticed my head in the pillow, and the head in the pillow is a beautifully comfortable, soft experience, especially when you're on a mattress and a duvet cover over you, which is the normal case for most people sleeping. And it's really comfortable. And noticing that for about 10, 20 seconds in each part, head in the pillow, then the mattress, then the duvet cover, and then the, just the general feeling of comfort. And the grumpiness is gone. So that's like 30 seconds, and I've changed my mood. And that change of mood, even then, will, to some probably undetectable way, make my relationship with my wife and the people that I meet that day better. Because the grumpiness is away. There's a better me already in place. Then you go through the normal process. When you're having a shower, notice the water on you. It's a lovely experience. When you put clothes on, I mean, this is a really nice soft jumper. And it feels good on me. So when I put it on at first, it's just, it's not fake appreciation. And it's not a kind of, I've got to be grateful. Think it's noticing it, noticing the reality of what you've got. If you've got carpets, noticing the softness on your feet. You know, the give. If you've got rooms, notice the fact that you've got rooms. You know, and this sounds so obvious, but lots of people don't have rooms. You know, lots of people don't have clean clothes. Lots of people don't have much in life, and you've got so much. I look behind me, and the books there, and the albums, and stuff like that. You know, life is so brilliant for me, but only if I see it, only if I, I realise it. So the day goes by. So right now, I always use this as an example. I've got a cup. Way so what? Millions of people have got cups, but lots don't. This cup was given to me by a group um, who I helped um, with mindfulness. And I've always loved indigenous art. And they got me this mug, which is an Aboriginal painting of um, a crocodile. And I think it's gorgeous. And when I hold it, and there's still some warmth in the tea here, it feels pleasant. And it feels smooth. And I just notice it. Normally, if I remember back to me being before mindfulness 20 odd years ago, I'd be taking the exact same cup and not even notice I've picked it up, not notice what the design was like, not notice what the cup was like, not notice what the drink was like, not notice how it smelled. And it's all gone because my mind would be elsewhere. My mind would not be in the present moment and it wouldn't be here in this room. I'd be thinking, right, I'm going to get into Glasgow and I'm going to meet RBS and I'll be speaking to them about this and I want to do that. And the cup is invisible. And the drink has no taste and nothing has been experienced. And that is a shockingly bad use of time. Mm. Which is lovely. So that's how I live my day. Now, at some point in that morning, I sit down and I do the classic mindfulness practice. Eyes closed meditation. Don't like the word meditation. It's a poor translation. The real word was bhavana, which meant to cultivate the mind. This is mental training. This is nurturing your best qualities and dampening down your worst qualities. It's as simple as that. But you have to do it. You can't hope that your mind is going to change and leave it to hope, you know, leave it to circumstances. Like somebody will come along when you're not looking, lift up your forehead and your scalp, take out the brain you've got and put in a perfect one, you know. It doesn't work that way. If it did, I'd be the first in the queue. But I just sit. Close my eyes, 
normally I spend a minute noticing what my mind is like and also noticing, and this is really pleasant if you get used to it, noticing what a difference it is to close your eyes. How does the body react? The body seems to simmer down, settle down, relax. The mind can do one of two things. It either perks up because you're saying, oh, eyes are closed, something might, terrible might happen, um, or it settles down, thinking, ah, time to rest. And then I just notice what happens in my body and my mind. So after maybe 20 seconds, I might notice, I've actually got a bit of a sore shoulder. Now, I don't do anything about it except relieve it a wee bit. It's just pure awareness. I might notice that I start thinking about what I've got to do after breakfast. And if that's the case, I just notice it happens and I'll let it fall away. And this, therefore, is mental training. This is a three-stage kind of training. One is the development of noticing what's going on in the present moment, a concrete discipline of noticing what's going on in the present moment, including especially what's going on in your own mind while it's happening, not retrospectively, oh, I shouldn't have been, I've said that, I was so angry. You know, you want to notice that anger as it's arising so you don't see it. So it's the noticing what's going on and then accepting what's going on in your mind. So you're not fighting it, you're not um, trying to suppress it, but you're not following it either. And then the third thing is take your mind somewhere better. It's a bit like if you, I don't know, bad example because I can't think of a good one. If you go to the cinema and you all sit down and row F and you think, okay, that's good. And then you realize the person in front of you is eight foot tall and you think, hmm, bad seat, let's sit somewhere else. It's just like that. I've got a rotten mood. Oh, I don't want that. Let's go to a different mood. And, and it's doable. Not easy, but it's doable. And that's why you practice. That's why it's called practice. You just keep doing it. So I do that through my day. Now, those little things, noticing ordinary things like when you're eating, notice you're eating. You know, when you're sitting on a couch, notice how nice the couch is. If the cat jumps in your lap, then don't absentmindedly pat them, actually pat them for real. Things like that. And then I top and tail it with the actual practice I've just described. But in between, I do what I call a little micro practice, which is I notice I'm a bit tired or I notice I'm a bit annoyed an email, you know, all the things we normally get or something we planned, somebody phones at last minute and say, can we change it? And you think, oh, hmm. When these happen, generally speaking, so this about a dozen times a day, I just close my eyes and have to talk it through because <laughs> this is an audio only. I say to myself as I breathe in, breathing in, it's clearing this all away. My mind becomes clear, refreshed, and it's empty. No distractions, no irritations anymore. And as I breathe out, I just notice how quiet it is and think, I feel peaceful again. Now I can deal with this. Boom. And I just get back on with it. And that can be maybe every 20 minutes, every 40 minutes. And it's, it's literally 10, 20, 30 seconds. It takes almost no time at all. But it's reframing, reframing, reframing. Um, but to reframe, you have to notice what the original frame is. So that, that's it. Then last thing is heads in the pillow. And it's beautiful. It's comfortable. 
So you, you finish the day the exact same way as you start the day and you feel grateful mm. that, you, that you've got a bed. Yeah, and I think that a couple of things just to quickly pull out of that. Um, firstly, the one around you saying about, you know, when, earlier in the show you were saying about when you think back to when you weren't mindful and you would just do things as we all do throughout our day of not noticing and not being aware. And, and I think the key is there is what you've described there is, again, an, um, an inspiring place to, to be. And, and for me, part of doing this project is for me to aspire to be more mindful and, and to practice more along those lines. And the, the key to that is I need to start somewhere. And you had to start somewhere, right? It didn't just happen one day that that all fell into place. It was about continually training your mind and doing the mindfulness practices around that and developing what works for you. And I think that's a key message for, for people to take away is, yes, the best time to plant the tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is now and all we have is now. And it it's it, it it's the best thing is to just get started on it and see how it works and, and evolves for, for you. Um, so I, I think that's been... Um, very interesting, very inspiring in terms of hearing how you'd live in a mindful way throughout the day, um, but also for people to perhaps um, not expect that to be the same for them the first time they go through this to, to start that practicing. It takes time, and, and that's where the benefit comes. It's kind of um, exponential, I guess, in terms of the benefit of it is because you're building goodness upon goodness the more you practice. Um, therefore, it becomes more of a habit rather than being something that we're trying to do yeah there's a cumulative effect and you know the evidence from the neuroscience shows this as well and but it's also logical the more you change your mind to having a positive experience and the less frequently you experience a negative mind you will become happier you'll become less strained or less stressed you'll become more peaceful it's it's, in one sense, it's common sense. It's just hard work. And it's not hard work. It's easy to notice your head in a pillow and find it nice. It's remembering all the time that's the hard work, remembering to do it, uh, and, and overcoming the mind's crazy self-defeating resistance to it, which is saying, oh, you don't want to do that. Why not go and have a biscuit instead? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, on our next um, show, we are going to be looking at the fourth noble truth, which actually is uh, entitled the Eightfold Path. So we will um, explore that. Um, and I think that helps the, the entirety of the Eightfold Path helps us to understand the steps that we can take to, to live more mindfully. So I'm very much looking forward to exploring that in our next show. But um, for, day, for today, Martin, thank you again for your time and sharing your expertise on this. Um, I found it fascinating. Again, I've said this to you off air. I feel a bit as if I'm cheating by being involved in this because I'm learning so much myself from it. Um, but I, I found it fascinating, so thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. It is our firm belief that it is healthy for your business, your family as a whole, and each individual involved to learn how to develop a fresh, more objective perspective of the situation each of you is in, so that clearer aims, hopes, and visions can be explored together in a positive, 
respectful and constructive manner. Martin and I have created the Mindful Family Business Programme to help you with this. If you'd like to find out more about this, please head to familybusinesspartnership.com forward slash mindful for more information. Or you can email me, russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. We really hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please feel free to share it with your family. And you can even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.